0: Hello, everybody. It's great to be here again. My uh, routine, like a lot of people's, have been a little bit um, topsy-turvy lately. I used to work out every morning and watch ESPN, and that's one of the things I miss the most right now. So um, if you wouldn't mind, just indulge me a little bit. I've missed some sports, so I'm going to give you start off with some sports trivia. In the NFL, one quarterback throwing at least 10 passes a game went an entire game without throwing one incomplete pass. And in the National Basketball Association, 209 players scoring at least 20 points went an entire game without missing one shot. And in Major League Baseball, 280 pitchers had at least one no-hitter. And in hockey last year, and I'm not a hockey fan, so, you know, I've obviously been a little bored. But in the uh, NHL last year, 49 goalies had at least one game where they didn't let one goal, um, they didn't give up one, one goal. Now, some people may say, well, yeah, Glenn, that's their professional athletes. And I would counter and go, yeah, but they're playing against professional athletes as well. But they were perfect as far as their sports go. And regular people can be perfect too. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna demonstrate this right now. You are gonna be perfect. I'm gonna ask you three questions. Give me the answer. Well, to yourself, I'm gonna be able to hear. My wife and Pastor Eric might be able to hear. What's two plus two? Who was the first, (laughs) they're they're showing me their fingers. Uh, Who was the first president of the United States? And what is the color of the American flag? If you said four, George Washington, and red, white, and blue, you performed perfectly. Now, how many of those athletes do you think are perfect in person despite their perfect performance? None. And how many of you are perfect despite your perfect performance on that, on that pop quiz? Nobody. One of the countless differences between God and man is that God is perfect in essence. He's perfect in who he is, and he's perfect in what he does. He's perfectly holy. He has never violated an aspect of his word. He's omniscient. He knows everything about everything. And he's... Omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time at the same time. And he's omnipotent. And this is coming right from Pastor Kyle. I can hear him saying this. God doesn't just have all power or most power. God is power. And another thing that's amazing about God is the continuity of his of his perfection. He's always been perfect. If he was a little less omniscient, if he failed to know a, one detail about something, or if he failed to be somewhere for a quadrillionth of a second, or if he gave up a mite of his power, he wouldn't just be a little bit less of those things. He would cease to be God. But he's all those things, not only um, perfectly, but also continuously. All those athletes, at some point, their streak ended. That quarterback threw an incomplete pass at some point. Those baseball pitchers let up a pitch. But God has never, ever discontinued his perfection. It wasn't like he needed to work out his flaws and his his imperfections until he got to the point where he was perfect. He just always was perfect. And when something is perfect, it doesn't have to change. In fact, if something is perfect, it can't change. And that brings us to tonight's topic. God is unchangeable. Or if we really want to sound smart, God is immutable. Now, last week I spoke about the sovereignty of God. And what was interesting is that God informs us in many ways that he's sovereign. He does it through his his actions. He does it through the words of some of the writers that wrote that he was sovereign. But never did he specifically from his own mouth say that he was sovereign. Now, I want to jump in front of this real quickly. I don't want anyone to misconstrue this. I'm not saying because God didn't directly say that he wasn't sovereign, that he's not sovereign. He doesn't have to. The fact that it's written in the Bible in any way is proof that he's sovereign. But what's interesting in comparison to him being unchangeable is that he specifically tells us that he is unchangeable. It comes right from his mouth. In Malachi 3.6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. I'm not being condescending. I'm not being belittling when I ask this question. But what is it about those six words that people don't accept? I, the Lord, do not change. People understand it. A person of average intelligence knows what that what that sentence means. But why do so many people struggle to accept it? So tonight, I want to talk about the implications of the truth that God is unchangeable, and also I want to dig in a little bit as to why people don't accept this truth. So the foundation of tonight's message comes from Hebrew six chapter <laughs> Hebrew six verses thirteen through eighteen. Hebrew 13 through eighteen. Okay, it reads. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the summary of this passage is we are blessed because we serve an unchangeable God. So how are we blessed by God's immutable nature? Since God is unchangeable, we can trust him to be reliable because he's faithful. I'm gonna say that again. Since God is unchangeable, we can trust him to be reliable because he's faithful. If asked to define the word reliable and the word faithful, a lot of people would mention trustworthy in both of those definitions and they would be correct because the result of both of those words ends in in trustworthiness. The person that is reliable to his word means that he's trustworthy to do what he says that he's gonna do. The person that is faithful to her family means that she's trustworthy to take care of them. Now, these two words are very similar in the fact that they both end in trustworthiness, but their motivations for being trustworthy is very different. And we can begin to see that as we look at the formal definition of both of those words. Reliable means suitable or fit to be relied on worthy of dependence or reliance. It can also mean consistent. So a person who personally sees an accident take place is a more reliable witness than somebody who hears about that accident. So the 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 account of the eyewitness is more trustworthy than hearsay. The advice of a certified accountant is probably going to be more reliable than your know-it-all relative, that nobody wants to sit next to at Thanksgiving. The advice of the certified accountant is going to be more trustworthy than that of of the average person. A person who goes to work every day and honestly meets the responsibilities of the job is a reliable worker. He's trustworthy to do his job. Now on the other hand, faithful means loyal or devoted, adhering firmly to a person or a cause. The actions of a faithful person are motivated by emotion and devotion. So an eyewitness may be reliable but have no faithfulness to anybody involved in the accident or to whom they may be relaying that information to. A certified accountant can give trustworthy advice, but not be faithful to the people that he or she is, is, is working for. And as an HR director, I see it every day. Reliable employees come in, but they're not necessarily faithful to the job. They don't bleed, they don't bleed the, the colors of our logo, and that's fine. Trust me, I'm happy with people just coming in and doing what we pay them to do. But there is a difference. Reliability doesn't necessarily result in faithfulness, but faithfulness always results in reliability. And this is the overarching message that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing in the passage that we just read. The writer points out that God wanted to reassure his children that because he is unchangeable, he's reliable to keep his promise to them. And the reason that he's reliable is because he's faithful. Again, meaning loyally committed to the most important entity possible, himself. In verse 18, God reinforces his reliability to keep his word through two unchangeable things. And these two things are one, his promise and two, his oath. So basically what God is doing is double downing on his reliability, his reliability to keep his word by making a promise to do so and then adding on top of it an oath to keep his promise. So let's focus on the promise part just for a minute. A promise is a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. Now, quite often, a a promise is a private or personal guarantee from one person to another. And it's confirmed by maybe just a handshake or just just the trust that they have in, in one another. In verse 13, the writer reminds us that God made a promise to Abraham to bless him and to multiply him. So what the writer is doing here is presenting to us God's resume. He's saying, God has a history of keeping his promises. Look, he did it back then, he's doing it now, so we can trust him right now to keep his promise. Since God is the epitome of a promise keeper, why doesn't the word just say that by, by one unchangeable thing, that one unchangeable thing being his promise? I'm going to explain that in a couple of minutes, but here's a spoiler. It's not because his word to keep his promise alone is not enough. So just keep a, a mental bookmark on, on promise for a second. Just put that on the shelf. We're gonna come back to that. And we're gonna focus our attention on the second unchangeable thing, the oath. It says in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. While a promise is somewhat of a of an informal private affair, an oath is a solemn pledge or a vow, usually confirmed by something recognized as sacred or greater than the people who are keeping that, that uh, making that oath. In 16, it says by something greater than themselves and also an oath is often taken in the presence of witnesses. So it's like saying, I'm so serious about keeping this promise that I'm doing it in the presence of God and in front of all these witnesses. This usually occurs in marriage ceremonies or civic duty vows like public office inaugurations, um, serving on the jury or as a witness in court. So this brings us to two reasonable questions. One, since God always keeps his promises, why does he take the unnecessary step of making an oath? And in the presence of whom greater is he going to swear by? Well, the answer to both of these questions is actually found right in this portion. Verse 17 tells us he wants to reinforce to us that he is reliable to keep his promise to us. Basically, his objective is to reiter- reiterate the unchanging nature of of his character to mere human oaths are something that people understand it tells us in verse 16 for people swear by something greater than themselves and an oath is final for confirmation so the answer to why does he make an oath although his promise is enough is because he wants us to clearly understand the magnitude of his seriousness and in keeping his vow. And to do that, he's simply stepping down to our level. He's speaking to us in, in ways that we understand. He's saying, if an oath is the highest level of commitment that you understand, then yes, my promise is like that. And what is greater than God to which he can swear by? Absolutely nothing. That's why in verse 13, we're told, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And this is a huge truth in relationship to what I mentioned earlier. Faithfulness always results in reliability. Again, faithful means loyal to a person or a cause. We can trust that God is going to be un- is unchangeable because he's unchangeably faithful to us. He's going to be reliable because he is always faithful to us. Again, faithful-, faithful means loyal to a person or a cause. We can trust that God is unchangeably reliable because he's unchangeably faithful to us. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says, "Now theref, know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandment to a thousand generations. How can we trust that He's unchangeably faithful to us? Because He's unchangeably faithful to himself and unconditionally so." In First Timothy 2:13, it reads, "If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself." And that's a very interesting line, for he cannot deny himself. You know, if God didn't demand that we worship him, pray to him, study his word and gather together in his name, he wouldn't be faithful to himself because he is holy. It is imperative that he demands that we're holy as well. So if he didn't demand that we do the things that a lot of Christians believe are optional, he would be denying himself. It's right that we worship God. If he didn't expect that, if he didn't demand that, he would be imperfect because to not do it would mean that he's wrong. So he, he has to demand those things. And thank God that he's unchangeably faithful to himself. And that his faithfulness is not predicated on our faithfulness to him, because our faithfulness to him is wishy washy. I'm not saying that our faith in him is wishy washy. I'm saying that every day we stumble, we fall. We fall out of alignment, either in word, thought, and action, and usually in all those things every day. But God remains unchangeably merciful and patient. He's faithful to forgive us and strengthen us to be more like Christ because of who he is, not because of what we do. It seems with each passing generation, people's promises and oaths become less binding. And we're not even shocked by it. When a politician stands in front of us and and promises they're gonna do this and that, and they don't do it, we're not blown away. As a matter of fact, we almost expect them to drop the ball. But even though our tolerance for unfulfilled promises and our expectations for them are, are, are the norm, God's not like that. He's never going to relent. He is faithful to his promises and his oath. So why do people believe God does change, even though he clearly says that he doesn't? You know, some believers say that their unbelief that God is unchangeable is the main reason why they either don't believe that he exists or they don't believe his word. Now, what they'll do is pick specific events from the Bible, usually out of context, and use that as evidence of God changing some, some way or another. They'll say, see God changed? Here, he's unreliable. Or they'll say something that's analogous to God was different in the Old Testament than he was in the New Testament. Or he said he would do something here, but he did something different over there. There's a couple reasons why people do this. One, they may just be looking for a reason to generally not accept God. And they're just grasping for straws. And this is the closest straw that they can get to support their weak excuse. Or they may be trying to justify their actions or their lifestyle. They want to somehow demonstrate that since God is changeable, his position on what they're doing now was different back when the Bible was written. Or often, they'll point out some ceremonial practices or civil-oriented commands or health regulations that are no longer in effect today and try to use that as proof that forms of immorality considered sin in the past are okay now. But regardless of the details of their motives, they're, not, they're essentially saying if God can change his mind about things back then, then he can change his, his mind about things now. Now, we have to be honest. There's some things in the Bible that at least the first time that we read them really seem to us that God changed his mind or wished he had done something different. Like, for instance, in Exodus 32, the whole golden calf fiasco, and I'm going to summarize that. Moses goes up the Mount Sinai to meet God, and God tells Moses, the Israelites are down there worshiping an idol. Now step aside, I'm going to go down and destroy them. And um, Moses said, well, wait, wait, God, let's think about this for a minute. If you do that, what will the Egyptians think? They'll think that you freed the the Israelites from the Egyptian bondages just to bring them out into the desert. To destroy them. then you don't want them to think that, right? And it tells us in verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the the disaster he had threatened. And then there's verses like Genesis 6, 6, where it says God regretted that he made man. Or in 1 Samuel 15, 10, where God regretted that he made Saul king. It certainly sounds like God wished he had done something differently, right? Now, I don't think I'm the only one that surmised when you first read that and you said, oh well, okay, well, I guess God changes his mind and he regrets doing some things. And then I just moved on. Now I've heard some Christians say, well, yeah, God changes his mind, but it doesn't change who he is. But as we get to know the word more and get to know God, we realize, no, it, that's absolutely a big deal. Changing God changing his mind would actually change everything we know about him. So does God change his mind is not only a fair question, it's a question in which the answer impacts all we know about the Lord. So with people, a person's change of mind doesn't necessarily change who that person is unless that change of mind and that change of heart has something to do with their faith. However, if God changes his mind, it would mean that he's that He's changeable. That would mean that his first thought or his first plan had a flaw in it and he had to make a course correction and in order for him to have to do that that would have meant that he's imperfect which again would have meant that he's not god and the doubters would be right in not trusting him or taking him at his word but the fact is god doesn't change his mind in first samuel fifteen twenty nine, it says the glory of israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind so then, what what happened on Mount Sinai? Because it certainly looks like Moses talked God out of some. And what's going on with um, with, with God's regret for, of making mankind and making Saul king? Because it clearly tells us God regretted making them. So the first step. When we're approaching something in scripture that seems to contradict something else is to start with what we know is true. So as it pertains to God changing his mind or changing aspects of his character, we have to begin with first what we know. And the Bible clearly tells us that God doesn't change and he doesn't change his mind. Now, at least we can take those off the table. We know whatever it is, it isn't that God changes His mind or He changes character. So now we're free to look at the other variable. So then, what's going on? In this case, I think it makes sense to look at the author, Moses and, and Samuel. Moses wrote the book of Genesis and Exodus, two of the um, where two of the things we're talking about tonight take place, and I, he wrote the other three books of the the first five books of the Bible, too, called the Pentateuch. Moses. And Samuel both had a very unique relationship with with God. Moses says that his relationship was so intimate that in Exodus 33:11 that God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Now we know that the term face to face is figurative because later on God tells Moses that no man can look at him and live. So whatever it was that Moses was however he was interacting with God, we know it wasn't the person of God, maybe it was God's glory or something else, but it was a very intimate relationship that he had. Same thing with 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 samuel he's a prophet so he heard from god now moses's intimacy and knowledge of the person of god influences the way that he writes about him what he's saying is he and god engaged in a back and forth communicative relationship regarding these situations moses is impressing upon us that god's desire and willingness to engage with his people is one of his qualities. God's not a stoic god, he's not a robot. He's not a god who just created creation and then moved away. God created emotion, and we see them in the word in the word, and we see them in how he deals with us. God is love. God gets angry. God rejoices. It tells us in Luke 15:10, Jesus says, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God when one sinner repents. Who's doing the rejoicing? It's God. God gets jealous, jealous, meaning he wants what's his, he desires. What's his we're more familiar with envy, wanting what somebody else has. And a lot of times we mistakenly use the word jealous, but we're envious. God is jealous. God's emotions are holy and righteous. So with all this freshly in our mind, understanding how Moses wrote based on his personal relationship with with the Lord, let's go back and revisit those those uh, um, events that's in question right now. Let's start with, did God regret making man and making Saul kid? Moses and Samuel, again, influenced by their personal relationship with the Lord, basically was using a word that they believed would most powerfully impact us and make us understand that God was grieved by what mankind did and what Saul did. So it wasn't regret as though he made a mistake. He wasn't lamenting over wishing he did something different. He grieved because mankind and Saul fell so short. Now, God wasn't taken by surprise by that. He knew before the foundations of the world exactly what they would do and when they would do it. But being an interactive, loving God, he, he was still grieved by it. So that answers that one. That's pretty easy. The next one is really, really great. It's one of my favorite things to, to look at. Exodus 32, where it looks like Moses influenced God to change his mind. What was going on there? This is fascinating because we see two things happening at the same time. One, we see how God is setting the table for Moses. And we also see how through Moses, God is foreshadowing the gospel. God tells Moses, the Israelites are sinning. They deserve my wrath. And but for an intercessor, they're going to get it. And not only any intercessor, it has to be an intercessor in which God is well-pleased. Does that sound familiar? We've probably read that in the, in the gospel, right? And we know that God was well-pleased with Moses because he told Moses so basically. He said, look, I'm going to go down and I'm going to destroy the Israelites. And I'm going to start my creation over with you. Essentially, God was setting the table for Moses to be that intercessor on behalf of sinful Israel. Because that was always God's plan that there would be an intercessor between his holiness and sinful man. God didn't didn't change his mind. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Israelites did it back then, and we do it now. They rightly deserve to be punished, just like we do now. If it wasn't for an intercessor that God so mercifully provided, the Israelites would have been destroyed. If it wasn't for Jesus intercessing for us, we would be doomed. God didn't change his mind. He was simply fulfilling what he knew he would always do. That it, It's just amazing that we serve such a loving, merciful God like that. God does not change his mind because God does not change. God doesn't change his mind, but he has designed everything else in creation to change. God's creation has been continually changing since the moment he said, let there be light, because he added more to that. Creation expanded. The Bible tells us even heaven changes. It tells us in Revelations 21, there will be a new heaven. And we certainly know everything on earth changes. Nothing is the same on earth except for one thing, the reason why things change, and that's for his glory. The most important thing that the Lord designed to change is our hearts. And I don't know, but I can imagine that maybe that's the main reason why things change, so that we would be attracted to God, that we would see his His awesome power and his beauty uh, just, just through creation, and we'd become attracted to him. We'd become amazed by him, and we'd be inspired to know him more. The fact that hearts can change is why there's hope for some people that look for reasons to resist him. You know, when people resist or question God and his word on the grounds that... changes or anything based on scripture. They're basically demonstrating the first two beliefs that everyone must have in order for them to come to Christ. The first one is anyone who would become a believer must first believe that God exists. People who resist or question God on grounds of his word prove that they aren't atheists. Now we shouldn't be surprised by that because the Bible tells us there's no such thing as atheists. Romans 1 18 to 19 says, for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them basically people who deny the existence of god have to do a lot of work to disbelieve what they inherently believe. There's a lot of spiritual and mental acrobatics going on for them to not believe that God is God. Now I understand that it takes more than just believing that God exists. And James two 19 says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. However, the first step of every believer's walk with the Lord begins with believing that he exists. Hebrews 11, six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So, all of us believers got to that point, and then we took another step. Now, people who, res- who resist or question God on the grounds of his word know that God has standards for how people live. Now, that's pretty, pretty huge, too. That means that they're not deists. A deist is a person that believes God created everything but shows no interest in it, has no interaction with his creation. He just moves on. Therefore, he has no standards for how they live. People who resist or question God believe that his commands for how you must live prove that their belief that God has just moved on is wrong. Or they're looking for things to show that either God's commands support their sin, or that man misinterprets God's commands, or God's word can't be trusted so it's okay for them to engage in their sin. When a person presents arguments related to God's word, there's a good chance, just a good chance, that there's a spiritual battle happening inside of them. And I say a good chance because it's not a guarantee. If they're reprobate, there's no battle taking place inside them. Reprobate means a person's heart is so hard towards God and the things of God that they have no concern for him. They're not, they're, they're not moved by him. They don't think about him. If they engage in conversations about God, it's usually to try to, to break them down or, or to undermine Christianity. They may feel guilt, but they never feel conviction. They'll feel guilt maybe about hurting somebody else, but it has nothing to do with conviction and, and how, that, how their actions may have aligned outside of God's word. You know, we can't know whether a person is reprobate or whether a person ultimately will receive God because they may ask the same questions. They may put up the same arguments. They may act as harshly against the word as another person. But only God knows whether the person is redeemable or utterly lost. But for those who are resisting and battling, what are they resisting and battling? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is tugging on their hearts. The Holy Spirit is calling them. But they're sticking their fingers in their ears and they're going, blah, blah, blah. I can't hear you. Or they're hiding behind couches and sofas in their minds trying to ignore what's going on. But he's knocking. Several years ago, I had a conversation with a man. I didn't know him very well. He didn't know me very well. Um, but over the course of a couple of days, we um, had some conversation. And at some point, I don't know what we were talking about, but I mentioned something about my faith, maybe something about the Bible. I, I don't know what it was. But he said, oh, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, can I ask you something? I said, yeah, sure. Now I'm thinking he's going to ask me something about the Bible. I thought he was going to ask me something about my faith. He said, I'm living with my girlfriend. Do you think I'm going to hell? that was his question. I was like, well, all right. So it took me half a second to gather myself. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to answer that. And I'll let you know, first of all, that it has nothing to do with what I think. But why did you ask that question? Why did you phrase it that way? Because without being aware of it, this man was thinking biblically. There was a lot of theology in that question. One, he obviously proved that he he knew that God existed. He obviously believed that God had standards. He obviously believed that he was living beneath those standards. And he obviously believed that there was punishment for living outside of God's word. Basically, he, that was, he knew half the gospel. So long story short, I just shared the other half of it. I just talked to him about the grace of the cross, talked to him about the works of, of Christ. Um, didn't take very long. Asked him at the end of the conversation if he wanted to accept Christ. And he said, absolutely. So right there, he accepted um, Christ as his Lord and Savior. That was amazing. So then I didn't see him for a few years. Happened to bump into him. And as soon as I saw him, I remembered. And so we exchanged some pleasantries, found out that he wasn't with his girlfriend anymore. He had married somebody and they were starting a family. And, you know, so that was kind of it. So as we turned to part, I was kicking myself because I knew I should have asked them the follow up question. How's your walk with the Lord or something like that. But I walked away about three steps and he said, Glenn, turned around. He had this big smile on his face. He said, you and I will always be connected. I said, really, how so? He said, because you led me to Christ. That warned my heart. That, that was amazing. You know, I, I don't know how long he, the Spirit tugged on his heart before we had that conversation. Obviously, something was going on. It didn't happen right at that moment. I don't know what excuses he had before about not accepting Christ earlier. But what I do know is God stepped into his life that day and did what he did, did what he created hearts to do, change. He went from a sinner to one saved by lord's grace god is unchanging so we can take comfort that he is reliable to fulfill his promises to us because he is faithful to himself and fuss to us so what does this mean how should this impact our lives how does god's unchanging character affect how we live but well, just three ways i want to um, present to you tonight. The first one is, it should eliminate our opinions about things in which God has cl- clearly given us his command. God's word is just as true as the answers that, to the questions that I gave you earlier. One of the questions was two plus, what, what's two plus two? The answer is four. Where's there room for opinion in that? It, it just it is what it is, right? Regardless of how much time goes by or how societal values change or who the leaders are, God's commands are good and they're unchangeable. Therefore, we need to look at everything through a biblical lens. When asked, what do we think about this or how do we feel about that? Our response and our actions need to boldly proclaim that we believe what the Bible says about this or that. I know sometimes it's uncomfortable. I know it makes us think, maybe people will think that we're weird, but when, when God gives us the opportunity to stand, we need to stand. So when we have those situations, when we encounter people like that or opportunities like that, we need to pray for strength and grace to make the most of every opportunity. Now, let's also understand that those opportunities are not opportunities to beat people over the head with the Bible. They're opportunities to respond in grace. We encounter people every day that don't believe what we believe, for one reason or another, in my line of work, I come across a lot of diverse. And a friend of mine, Christian brother of mine, asked me if it was challenging to do my job when I'm working with so many people that aren't Christian. And I knew what he was getting at. And you know, my my answer was no, not at all. Actually, I enjoy it even more. How would I glorify God if my heart was so full of judgment that I gave people a different version of myself? Just because we're different in any way. Now, what message would I be giving them about the Lord, my Savior? One of my favorite verses is Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Always, my responsibility in my job is to create an environment where all my employees are free to to be the best employees that they can possibly be. I need to create an environment where they can thrive. And I do that by keeping my door open to them. I do that by coaching them, by counseling them, by laughing with them, sometimes lecturing them sometimes turning into a dad and saying, listen, I'm going to tell you what I would tell my daughter right now. You know? And that's what I'm supposed to do. And not only am I legally supposed to do that, that's neither here nor there, but I honor God by doing that. If I were to act otherwise, how does that open up the door for somebody who might incline their ear to what, anything that I would say related to my faith or another Christian down the road? They would say, well, I, you know, I know a Christian and no, let, me, let me tell you, I don't want any part of that. We need to make sure that we are responding in grace to everybody that we, that we encounter. We use those opportunities as opportunities that, to, to get to know them a little bit more, and they would have the opportunity maybe to open up to us. In order to win somebody to Christ, we first have to win their trust. They have to believe that we care about them, they have to believe that we're genuine. May not happen overnight, may not happen weeks or, or years, or we may not reap the benefit of leading that person to the, to the Lord, but we plant the seed for somebody else to sell. So the second truth of God's, of, of God's unchangeability should carry us through hard and uncertain times. And again, going back to where we are right now, this is an amazing unprecedented. We have no idea what's going on. We don't know what it's going to be like getting through it. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know what it's going to look like when we get to the end of it. But what we do know is that God knows. He's greater than this. He's sovereign over this. He's promised to be with us always to the end of the age. And always to the end of the age are two unchanging promises that we can on. We're always under God's watchful eye, no matter how hard it gets. He cares for us. Isaiah 49 15 is a remarkable Bible verse it says can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb even these may forget yet I will not forget you basically what God is saying is it's easier for a woman of a newborn while she's nursing that that newborn to forget her baby than it is for him to turn away from us. that it's that's amazing In, in this situation with the Uh, coronavirus and in any other situation we don't know how we're going to get to the end we don't know what it's going to look like when we get there but we know for sure the unchangeable strength and the guidance that God will give us step by step day by day and then finally the truth of God's immutability I got to stick with the smaller word the truth of God's changeability should give us (laughs) encouragement when we fall short it can be frustrating when we're stumbling over the same sin over and over. And a lot of times we get into that humanistic cycle. We, we say we're not going to do it. We do it. And then we recommit ourselves. We pray harder. I'm not sure what praying harder looks like or feels like, but we say we're going to do it. We're going to get more dedicated. And then we do it again. And then we get harder on ourselves. And then eventually we start to project human qualities to God on God and think, well, you know what? If somebody else kept failing like I'm failing... I'd probably be done with them just like God is probably done with. And that's that's a lie. That's what Satan wants us to believe. He wants us to, to give up and just go our own way. But God is constantly molding us. Every day he's faithful to his word. So he's doing it. Just sometimes it's unperceivable to us. But every day he's making us more like Christ. And he's going to do that. He's going to continue doing that. He's not going to reject us because he can't. He loves us too much to do that. And he cannot deny himself. God is a good God. He's an unchanging God. Seasons are going to come and go. We're going to face ups and downs. And we're so changeable that we may face the same thing. And that thing may not have changed. But we go about it 10 different ways. We change. All those things will change. But God does not. So however, despite all the things that will change, the greater truth is we serve a God whom is faithful and he's reliable, and we are blessed by the truth that he is not going to change. James one seventeen says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly light, who does not change like shifting shadow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you because you have shown us in your word that you are unchangeable. We are witnesses of your faithfulness and your goodness, God. We thank you that though we stumble and we often fall and we fall short of your your great commands, you are forgiving and you're patient with us. We pray that you would continue the good work in us that you that you started, that you're faithful to continue to do. We pray, Father, that our lives would be a great testimony of your glory and your greatness. Bless us all tonight as we as we turn away from this live stream and um, back to our other activities. Father, may you burn in our hearts, Father. May you convict us of the areas that we need to change. May you draw us nearer to you and one another. In Jesus' holy, precious name we pray. Amen.